In 2004, the acronym FOMO was introduced to the Webster's Dictionary. FOMO is defined as fear of missing out. Fear of not being included in something such as an interesting or enjoyable activity that others are experiencing. Missing the chance to win something. Missing the opportunity to get that great job. Missing that party with friends. Missing a potential spouse because you weren't at the right place at the right time. Our forward vision is blurry at best, but hindsight is always 2020, and that means we regularly uh, allow our past to affect our future. If we miss out too many times, we will work extraordinarily hard never to miss out again. Our smartphones with constant connection to the world is a vehicle that fuels FOMO today. FOMO and social media go hand in hand. FOMO can be clinically diagnosed as disconnection anxiety. Tony Renke, in his book, 12 Ways Your Phone is Changing You, speaks of a young woman who was raised offline in an Amish community for the first 18 years of her life before entering the online world. Soon after getting her first smartphone and a social media presence, she took an offline mission trip, and here's what she said, quote, I was thinking, I just can't wait to get back to the U.S. where I can be connected to technology again and see what's happening because it feels like I'm naked or something without being constantly updated on what's going on. Theologian Kevin Van Hooser says many people suffer from two anxieties, status anxiety, what will people think of me, and disconnection anxiety, I connect, therefore I am. Christians are not above this temptation and are tempted to remain tethered to the daily news cycle. Viral videos, political forecasts, entertainment news, and social media frenzy like never before. And I wonder if the desire for personal affirmation might be social media's strongest lure for people. And it's only amplified when we feel the sting of loneliness and suffering in our lives. At the first moment of discomfort... We tend to go for our phones to medicate the pain with affirmation that's missing. And we don't want to miss out. And where did FOMO originate? Can you think of any story in the Bible where FOMO most clearly seen is that of Genesis 3? Right? FOMO was probably the first fear that stoked in the hearts of humans when that slithering serpent came out of the tree and tempted Eve and saying, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be open. You'll be like God, knowing good and evil. Eve, you're missing out. You don't have all the details, Eve. Don't you fear of what God's holding back from you, Eve? These words, this lie. Satan goes after God through his creation. And how does he do it? By none other than fueling anxiety in the hearts of humans. And how are we affected today? We're deeply affected with anxiety. Satan kindled the fire of FOMO in our hearts and the flames haven't been fully extinguished in the human experience. Anxiety. That's the topic this morning. Anxiety. Anxiety and the fear of man. Anxiety and the fear of want. So here's my main idea. Here's what I hope to convince you of 
by the end of our time. Disciples of Jesus battle anxiety and continue to follow him in spite of the hostility of man and their own concern over financial and physical needs. It's on the screen there if you want to write it down. That is the main idea, and we're going to launch in with two points, anxiety and the fear of man and anxiety and the fear of want. So first, anxiety and the fear of man. Luke chapter 12, look at verse 1. In the meantime, when so many thousands of people had gathered together that they were trampling one another, he began to say to his disciples, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. Nothing is covered up that will not be revealed or hidden that will not be known. Therefore, whatever you have said in the dark shall be heard in the light, and what you have whispered in private rooms shall be proclaimed on the housetops. If you remember, Jesus just left the conversation with the Pharisees in chapter 11 and the lawyers, and now he steps into a large crowd, so much that, that, that he's been, people are being trampled to hear him. And this crowd is made up primarily of simple people, dirt farmers, fishermen, peasant workers, and Jesus is never uh, intimidated by large crowds. He, he doesn't seek to please them. Jesus always speaks the truth. And he calls out the hypocrisy of the religious teachers. He knows that he's being hunted by them. They're seeking ways to discredit him, to bring him down. And Jesus meets their madness head on. He will teach and expose people's desire to fear man more than God. And he says to them, be on guard, be aware for the teachers of the law, for the Pharisees. And the heart of the Pharisee's sin was hypocrisy, meaning they presented an external picture that did not match the internal reality. They, they polished the outside of the cup while the inside was filthy. Their hypocrisy put the religious bar at such an impossible height and they encouraged people to pretend to jump over it. The religion was a sham. But this call to be aware of them was incredibly urgent because Jesus says their hypocrisy had properties of yeast. It says, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees. Yeast expands and infiltrates and pervades. It, it spreads throughout a lump of dough and affects the whole. The very tricky thing about leaven or yeast is that it works slowly and secretly and silently. Kind of like sin. Christians today might assume that such hypocrisy would be blatant and crass and obvious. But that assumption would be plain wrong. He says, beware of these men who put on an outward show. When inside, they are dead. Their dead religion will be exposed one day. He says their lives will come into full display. <clears throat> I wonder if one day our lives will be shown on a big screen. At God's judgment. And on one side will be the life we lived. And on the other side of the screen will be the life that we tried to hide. When we come to these verses, we must ask ourselves, everyone who, who claims to be a disciple of Jesus, anyone who says they're a Christian, you have to ask yourself, am I a hypocrite? Do I fear God's judgment? Fearing the all-seeing, all-searching judgment of God is the first step in cultivating a healthy fear of God. And we need to spend time here and ponder with scrutiny over our lives at the subtle peril suggested at Jesus' words of the hypocrisy of the Pharisees. See, hypocrisy has the same tendency to go unnoticed in our own lives. 
whenever Christians are tempted to act like we are more holy than we truly are, when we are simply unwilling to confess sin and to ask others for help, when we seek to lay out man-made rules as the standard for holiness, in those situations, the leaven of the Pharisees is present in our own hearts. And God sees all. You cannot hide from the all-seeing eyes of God. He knows how to... uh, the hypocrite knows how to put up a front to impress people. They know how to speak one way when we're at church. And when we get home, we're a totally different person. And Jesus says, God sees this. God knows. J.C. Ryle has said, how little is this really felt? How many things are done continually which men would never do if they thought they were seen? How many matters are transacted in the rooms of imagination which would never bear the light of day? Yes, men entertain thoughts in private and say words in private and do acts in private which they would be ashamed and blush to have exposed before the whole world. The sound of a footstep coming has stopped many deed of wickedness. A knock at the door has caused many an evil work to be hastily suspended and hurriedly laid aside. But oh, what miserable folly is all this? There is an all-seeing witness with us wherever we go. Lock the door, pull down the blind, turn out the light. It doesn't matter. It makes no difference. God is everywhere. You cannot shut him out or prevent his seeing. Friends, this is a warning for us. Christian, be aware of how you're living. God sees all. He knows all. You are not fooling him. Jesus says, all that is said in the dark shall be heard in the light. And what he has whispered in private rooms shall be proclaimed on the housetops. But then he transitions to the fear that his disciples would have living under these fake spiritual leaders. Look at verse 4. It says, I tell you, my friends, do not fear those who kill the body and after that have nothing more that they can do. But I will warn you whom to fear. Fear him who, after he is killed, has authority to cast into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. Are not five sparrows sold for two pennies? And not one of them is forgotten before God. Why, even the hairs of your head are all numbered. Fear not, you are more valuable than many sparrows. The hypocrisy of the Pharisees and teachers of the law was exposed in chapter 11, 34 through 54. And that, that exposure by Jesus led to hostility for his disciples. See, the Pharisees had immense power. They could ruin a person by excluding them not only from the religious life, but also from the social and financial worlds of that time. They could be brought before the synagogues and the rulers and authorities, as he says in verse 11. And the result would be a great loss at many levels for them. And the Pharisees may be able to inflict physical harm in this life, but they have no power beyond this life. And they'll be exposed for what they are by God as their judge. The disciples have hostility with these men, but Jesus' disciples should fear God and not man. Jesus is not promoting fearless living here, but a transfer of fear from man to God. We should not worry about what man can do to us. God sees all. The tiniest details does not go unnoticed by God who watches over all. We should fear God, Jesus says. 
We have misplaced fears. Again, Christ isn't implying, uh, isn't implying telling us to not fear at all, no, but rather to make sure we fear the things that ought to be feared most. And fearing those will deliver us from lesser fears. It's true. It's, it's unnerving to be threatened by man. But friends, it's more fearful to fall into the hands of a living God. This bigger fear will deliver us from much smaller fears of men. The fear of man is real, whether it's literally fearing for your life or fearing what we might lose. And we need to be honest of our fear of missing out. Whether that to be accepted by the crowd and your friends or your fear of not having a comfortable life. There is a greater fear, friends. The fear of missing out on eternal life. There is a FOMO that is real when it comes to God. It's a fear of missing out that cuts through all the other fears of missing out on life. The fear of eternally missing out. God's wrath against our sin is very real, my friends. Justice demands that sin be paid for either by the guilty party himself or by an innocent substitute who bears the suffering and death on behalf of the guilty party. You and I are not innocent, friends. And there's justice to be reckoned for our sin against God. And it demands death. And apart from Jesus Christ, you and I would need to pay for our sins on our own. And if you and I are guilty of sin, and we are, and you're not trusting in Jesus, then you will miss out on eternal life. You will one day die and face a God who has the final authority to send you to an eternal punishment for your sins against him. The fear of missing out on eternal life is the FOMO worth losing sleep over. It is the, the FOMO that we should be concerned most for ourselves, for our friends, for our families, for our neighbors. And I want that eternal FOMO to register and rule in your mind this morning. I don't want you to walk away comfortable and secure in your destiny of hell. Friend, turn from your sins of trusting in yourself and turn and trust in Jesus. He is the only way to safety. Jesus further confirms this in verse eight. He says, and I tell you, everyone who acknowledges me before men, the son of man will also acknowledge before the angels of God. But the one who denies me before men will be denied before the angels of God. And everyone who speaks the word against the Son of Man will be forgiven. But the one who blasphemes against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven. And when they bring you before the synagogues and the rulers and the authorities, do not be anxious about how you should defend yourself or what you should say. For the Holy Spirit will teach you in that very hour what you ought to say. Verse 10 has caused issues over the years. So perhaps it's easier to say what this verse isn't saying. It isn't saying there are some sins in your life that you can never be forgiven of. It isn't saying that God will not forgive someone who, who consciously chooses to reject Jesus in a moment, or otherwise, Peter could never have been forgiven for his denial of Jesus before he was crucified. 
Instead, I believe it's saying to reject the outright offer of his forgiveness and his rule is to blaspheme against the Holy Spirit. Blasphemy against the Holy Spirit for a lifetime is a total refusal to receive Jesus Christ and his offer of peace with God. And such a rejection places a person beyond being forgiven. Friend, there is no purgatory for you to work out your sin. When you die on earth rejecting Jesus Christ, you are forever separated from God. There will be no second chances when this life is over. That's why we preach the good news of the gospel here each week. I believe there's always unbelievers in our services, whether children or adults. And as a gospel church, we will seek to share the hope that we have in this life. And so we'll keep sharing the news. And friends, it's the best news in the world. You can be free of the guilt of sin against God. Isn't that good news? You can live eternally with him. You can walk in newness and freshness of life knowing that God has accepted you, not because of any work that you could do, but simply because of Jesus Christ. It truly is the best news in the world. And so, friend, trust in him. If you've never, if you're here and you've never submitted your life to Christ, would you reach out to one of us elders after the service? Or even talk to the friend who invited you. We would love to walk you through the scriptures of what it means to know Jesus and to trust in him. So that's my first point. Anxiety and the fear of man. Second and last point is anxiety and the fear of wants or needs. Money and possessions are issues that reveal a lot about what people most have anxiety in how they view Jesus. Money is not your life. Even earning money is not the purpose of your life. Money cannot make you and money cannot break you. Remember that Jesus is talking to a survival culture here. Scratch, plow, farmers, poor fishermen, people who sell items in a marketplace. He's speaking to, to a third world village here. And Jesus is saying clearly to them, and he's saying to us, your life is more than food. Your life is more than money. Your life is more than the possessions that you have. So be honest, are are you fearing of missing out on food or clothing or money? Are you fearing of missing out on getting the best and latest stuff? Are you fearful of missing out in the future? What drives the anxiety in your life? It seems out of nowhere now as we come farther in this passage that this man approaches Jesus And wants him to help settle accounts for him. It says in verse 13. Someone in the crowd said to him. Teacher tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. But he said to them man. Who made me a judge or arbitrator over you. And he said to them take care. And be on your guard against all covetousness. For one's life does not consist. In the abundance of possessions. At this moment Christ didn't think it was wise. To be a referee. Perhaps the man didn't have a good case. Or maybe better he didn't think it was his office right now, to be judge in business disputes. But realize one day, Jesus will act as judge and divider over all men. But that day is not this day. But he didn't make a clear warning against covetousness, the disease of the human human soul. And he continues to talk of a parable now in verse 16. 
said, the land of a rich man produced plentifully. And he thought to himself, what shall I do? For I have nowhere to store my crops. And he said, I will do this. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones. And there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I will eat and I will say to my soul, soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, fool, this night your soul is required of you and the things you have prepared. Whose will they be? So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. The parable is a straightforward story. A fertile field makes a man richer and he now devises plans to store his wealth. He will enjoy his overabundance, taking life now a little easier and he'll relax, eat, drink, and be merry. But there's a catch. That night, his life will come to an end. In the end, the man was a fool. We don't realize that this farmer is a fool until he talks to himself. And he's a fool because he never considered his life with God. He has a false sense of purpose for his life. He also has a false sense of control, thinking that he will outlast his money. And when Jesus dubs the farmer a fool, he doesn't mean that he's brainless, but that he's godless. That's what the Bible means when it speaks of foolishness. Psalm 14, Psalm 53, both declare, the fool says in his heart, there is no God. The foolish man illustrates the point that when the man who came up to Jesus to settle an argument about his inheritance and relieve his anxiety about his desired riches, Jesus then points out that he was anxious about the wrong thing. The fool was not considering his eternal life. The fool thinks he's immortal. The fool forgets that he is accountable to someone else. The fool forgot that this life was only lent to him and that it could be asked back anytime. And the fool's goods, well, he would never enjoy them. They would fall into the hands of others. And because he only planned to lay up treasure for himself and not invest in God's eternal investments, he would not be rich towards God. He would be eternally poor. Material goods are given to us in this world not merely to maintain our lives, but so that we may use them in order to become rich towards God. So is the one who lays up treasure. This is present tense here indicating that this should be a continual, lifelong activity. One who lays up treasure. Covetousness comes subtly into our lives and can easily be defended in this world. And this parable spells out the dangers of hoarding wealth. We are to be aware of covetousness, which suggests an atheistic worldview. It shows that we don't trust in God. Are you hoarding your wealth? Or are you worried that you don't have enough? See, Jesus assumes that there are two kinds of fools here. The one who worries about the bigger barns and the fool who worries about skimpy pantries. One is preoccupied over the abundance he has and the other is over the deficiency that he fears. Greed can never get enough, and worry is afraid that it may not have enough. 
Either way, the focus is the same. They're both fear, fearing of, of missing out. And so Jesus takes this faulty thinking head on. He says in verse 22, and he said to his disciples, therefore I tell you, and this is a command from the Lord. He says, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat, nor about your body, what you'll put on. For life is more than food and the body more than clothing. There is so much more to who you are than what you have and what you don't have. The rich fool couldn't understand that and sought to acquire more. Friends, life is more than the things that we possess on earth. And now he's going to illustrate it for us because he's gracious. Verse 24, consider the ravens that neither sow nor reap. They have neither storehouse nor barn, yet God feeds them. Of how much more value are you than the birds? God feeds ravens. Crows. How many of you love crows? They do nothing to earn their food. They don't gather and store food, Jesus says. How do, how do ravens live? They live for the moment, and yet God provides for them. They're insolent, squawking birds. They know nothing of prudential habits of a farmer, and yet God feeds them. And how does he feed them? It's not appealing in the least. They're scavengers. They're trash pickers. They read crops and they eat roadkill. They don't do anything premeditated. They neither sow nor reap, and yet God feeds them. How much more valuable are you than crows? If God takes care of crows, friends, he'll take care of you. And then he, he challenges in verse 25, and by which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? If then you are not able to do as small a thing as that, why are you anxious about the rest? Jesus is saying clearly and compassionately, worrying does no good. If you can't do anything about it, what hope is there to worry about? What benefit does it bring? Jesus says it brings no benefit to worry about it. All it does is it, it comes in to hijack your mind. What worries have filled your minds in the last few weeks, months? Perhaps teenagers here coming out of a pandemic Wondering, do I have any real friends? What if I'm not accepted? What if I'm made fun of? What if I grow up and never have friends? Or single people here, and you think, will I ever find a spouse? And then you worry, if, if I do, will they be faithful to me? Will they stay with me? Will they be faithful to the Lord? And you worry, am I even worth marrying? And then when you have kids, you think, will I ever have kids? Or, sorry, when you are married, you think, will I ever have kids? And then you think and worry, if I do, how will my kids turn out? Will they love Jesus? Will they want anything to do with me? Will they grow up and just ignore me and you just keep working and you think now 
you worry, will I have enough for retirement? Or should I now really work all those mega hours so that I can put the money away? So I can save so that I can be taken care of when I retire? And then you know, others on the spectrum, you, you worry about your health. What about my health? Friends are getting sick around me. Some have died earlier than I imagined. Is that going to be me? What if I get Alzheimer's and, and I die unable to recognize people that I love? See, these worries can paralyze us. And Jesus says to you this morning, and I believe this, he says calmly and compassionately to you, friends, and which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to a span of life? Which of you can move forward in your life by being anxious? Which of you are better off in life because of the anxiety? Kevin DeYoung, in great wisdom, wrote in his book, Just Do Something, that anxiety is simply living out the future before it gets here. How often do we spend our time thinking of the future and we come, our, come away from that paralyzed in fear or worry? Living in anxiety causes us to act as if we might be able to control the uncontrollable. And central to anxiety is this belief that we can control things. Charles Spurgeon said, our anxiety does not empty tomorrow of its sorrows, but it empties today of our strength. I begin to think, if only I can get my retirement right. If only I can get it set up well and, and, and enough money into it, I can control my future. But friends, you don't know if the stock market would crash tomorrow. We may wake up tomorrow morning and it could be all gone. Some of you parents just trying to make it through the next week and you think if I can just figure out and implement the right child rearing technique, I could guarantee my kids growing up to be a productive member of society but you're not God and you can't figure out your kids all the way. You may think you know them, but that's a mirage and you can't guarantee anything in their future. See, anxiety assumes that we can control the future and anxiety and control are two sides of the same coin. When we can't control something, we tend to worry about it. And friends, Jesus brought you here this morning to sit under the preaching of his word so that you would give up your anxieties and trust in him. He wants you to stop controlling these situations and trust in him. He wants you to look deeply at him, to meditate on him, and see how he has been with you every step of the way. He wants you to understand how your anxieties are robbing you of strength and of joy in him. And he continues. He's, he's not done giving illustrations. He says in verse 27, consider the lilies. Look at the lilies, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass 
which is alive in the field today and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, how much more will he clothe you? Oh, you of little faith. Have you ever thought of why does God waste his creativity on flowers? Placing lavish splendor on such a momentary, fleeting, fragile thing. Why invest in such beauty? I suppose it's because God is not so much a pragmatist like us. God sends rain and sun on places where there's no humans to benefit from it. Why? Is there something to learn from that? Can we learn something of our God by just looking at flowers? I think so, friends. I wonder, did God simply give us flowers in the grass to prove to us that he will take care of us? I mean, it's amazing. Part of your responsibility as a church is is paying a pastor to think. And so I spent an hour thinking on this. I love that part of my job. (laughs) Staring out the window, thinking about this. It's truly amazing. God, give us a full field of flowers. A beautiful field so that we can ponder what he's saying here. To say to us, look, I made this beautiful field and I supply these flowers so that you can be rest assured that I will take care of you. And then he gently rebukes us. He says, oh, you of little faith. And we need that small rebuke if we're full of anxious care. Little faith doesn't mean no faith, but rather it's like a flashlight with drained batteries. It it still makes light, but the light is faint and and flickering and uncertain. The faith is dying out. And we lose sight of God because we want and we worry about it. It's the only thing we see and we need to ask, where is it? Where, where do we go off? What makes us forget God? What makes us forget his care for us? What do we, what do we fret about? And Because when faith begins to die out, greed and worry come to replace it. And the cure for anxiety is faith. Friends, you need to find a friend, whether here or somewhere else that you can ask each other, what are you worried about right now? What is causing you anxiety? And that you don't sit in judgment of each other. You just pray for one another. That's part of the draw for a church. If you're coming to church just because you want to be entertained on Sundays, you're missing out. That's not why we're here long term. It's to be involved in each other's lives. To pray for each other. To encourage one another. To spend time with one another. Perhaps you need to find a friend and just start talking about these things and praying about these things and holding each other accountable and encouraging one another and pointing each other to what we see in this world and how God takes care of us. 
Jesus continues this rebuke in verse 29. He says, do not seek what you are to eat and what you're to drink, nor be worried. For all the nations of the world seek after these things. And your father knows that you need him. So he's saying here, don't live for the things that everyone else is living for. Don't live the way the world lives. Live for someone who's better. And so the next time, friends, in your lives where you're overcome with anxiety over, over supply, over having friends, things that you, you, you know you need, and how are you going to manage it? I think the best remedy is to take a walk outside and to look at the flowers, to look at birds, and remember God, to dwell and meditate on his word. And look at all the splendor that we see and glorify God. Martin Luther said, it seems that the flowers stand there and make us blush and become our teachers. Thank you, flowers, you who are to be devoured by the cows. God has exalted you very highly that you become our masters and teachers. So think about that the next time you're mowing the yard. Don't think about, I don't want to mow the yard. Think about how God supplies for you and that he won't let you go without. And if God can look after them, he will certainly look after us. He says in verse 31, instead, seek his kingdom and these things be added to you. The neediest people in the world are those who do not have the kingdom of God, who are not in the kingdom of God. That's their greatest need. And when we seek God in his kingdom, we'll not only have our greatest need met, but we'll have those lesser needs met as well. And God is so committed to his children that these things will be added to you it means that God will supply all that we need. See, people who don't know God, who don't know the gospel, are anxious and they're worried, and that makes sense. But if God is so intimately involved in our lives and knows each hair on our head, how will he not supply all that we need? So seek his kingdom. Meaning everything we do, do in life should be for the honor and advancement of Christ our Lord, our King. And he says, these things will be added to you. So what's, what's the remedy for anxiety? Well, Jesus answers that in the last few verses here. Verse 32, fear not, little flock, for it is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. This is the only place in the Bible that I found where the phrase little flock is used. It's a vivid picture of a flock of sheep, small enough that the shepherd knows all their names, their personalities, and what they're facing individually. He's saying Jesus knows his sheep. Then verse 33 says, sell your possessions and give to the needy. Don't misinterpret this as a command to sell everything you own because the Bible assumes that believers have possessions. The stress here is how, how we are unattached as disciples to the world. That's the stress of it because we serve the kingdom of God. The goal here is to be generous, to give your money for the furtherance of the gospel. And then he says, provide yourselves with money bags that do not grow old, with a treasure in heaven, heavens that does not fail, where thief, no thief approaches and no moth destroys. For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. The way you make money bags that don't grow old and the way you gather a treasure in heaven is that it never fails is by being unattached to money here on earth. In other words, simplifying for the sake of love on earth maximizes your joy in heaven. See, possessions are always threatened by decay or theft. 
which means that the atheist hoarded wealth will always be at risk for a total loss. This is why Jesus' remedy for anxiety with our stuff is to use our things, our money, to invest in things that will last. Friends, if if you store all of your treasures on earth, it will inevitably pull your hearts toward earth. It will cause our minds to be focused on things of earth. But if we store our treasures in heaven, guess what? It will pull our hearts and with it our goals, our life, our ambitions, our longings, and our loves toward heaven. And we can say confidently, I can't wait to go to heaven. And I take the word treasure here to mean the object you cherish. And so friend, what is the object that you cherish most? Some of you have worked very hard for many years for that career that you enjoy. Is that what you cherish most? Some of you have waited for years for the right person to come along and to marry you. Is that what you cherish most? Others wanted children for years and now God's blessed you. Are those kids what you cherish most? Where your heart is, that's what you'll live for. For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. Your aims or goals in life will reveal what you treasure in life. Your attention will be grabbed by what you treasure. Your abandonment of prized possessions for special projects or people or things show what you treasure. The additional funds or hours that you sacrifice to complete a task or divulge what you treasure. An accounting of how you spend your money declares what you treasure. What do you treasure? Friends, what do you cherish most? When we live heavenly minded, it will make a radical difference in this world. The people who are most powerfully persuaded that what matters most is in heaven, not the accumulation of money here, those are the people who constantly dream of ways to simplify their life and to serve. And they are the ones who give and give and give. And they are the most free people in this world because they're not attached to things here. Their heart's already in heaven. And usually, they are the people who are older in the faith. Why? Because they have learned wisdom and they have learned what money can do and what money cannot do. And they make deliberate decisions to put their money where it won't be stolen and where it will grow and multiply. Friend, if you're reluctant to part with your money for ministry, you need to ask why. Why do you love your money like that? You need to follow where your money goes. 
Friend, you need to take a dive deep into your bank account this week. Where is your money going? Our money is drawn to our loves. So what do we love? Our loves absorb our lives like a sponge absorbs water. So where are your loves? Where is your treasure? Are the things that you cherish most on earth or in heaven? And perhaps your heart isn't there yet, and I'm going to encourage you to give anyways. And once energy and finances have been committed to a gospel project, your heart will follow. Friends, you need to make it really hard for money to have your heart. You need to battle against that. We all need to be ready to give away. We could build bigger and better barns on our property, but it will all fade away. Instead, we need to invest in things that will never pass away. Well, as I close, in the end of all this, I believe this passage is about our anxiety and our fears. And those anxiety and fears reveal our theology. When we're continually embracing anxiety and worry, we're embracing a set of beliefs about God and his love for us and his ability to take care of us. Perhaps you've never been confronted with this. Perhaps you've lost track how many times you've been confronted with this. Friends, God is not annoyed with you. He is patient. And he wants you to trust him. Your salvation isn't dependent on your faith in him. It's always been dependent on Jesus. And the remedy for anxiety is to accept and enjoy your relationship with God. Our Heavenly Father is not a deadbeat dad. He's not a loser. He hasn't broken his vows. He hasn't deserted his family. He hasn't left us to fend for ourselves. He is there. He's always been there watching over us. He, he walks with us every step of the way. I remember when my kids were beginning to walk. In fact, one of my girls took her first steps in the chapel on a Sunday evening a long time ago. And as parents helping our kids walk, we're always right there. And when they're first beginning, we walk behind them, holding them, there to catch them if they waver. And then after a while, we turn to the front so they can see us, locking eyes with them. And it's a look of trust. Trust me, look at me. Come to me, I'm with you. And Jesus is there locking eyes with us, friends, saying, trust me. We can give our anxiety over to him. We don't need to worry about people. Remember, Jesus said, what's, what's the worst they could do? I'm not trying to be flippant here, friends, but what's the worst they could do? They could kill us. He says, but after that, they have nothing more they can do. They can't touch our eternity. And if that's what we're living for, then we don't need to worry about it. And we don't need to worry about our physical and financial needs either. God has us. He's provided everything we've needed and he won't leave us. If, if God takes care of the fields and of the birds, how much more will he take care of us? And friends, it's true. Jesus really knows every hair on your head. For some of you, it's less than me. 
But Jesus knows every hair, every single one. He knows about all your needs. He knows about everything concerning you. He knows about your bad days and your good ones. He knows about everything that's causing you anxiety. He knows what you're worrying about right now. And he's calling you to come and rest in him. He's calling you to trust him. He knows about that medical procedure that's scheduled this week and the fear that it could be worse than you're ready to handle. He knows about that child that you poured into for years and decades that has rejected him, who has rejected you, who wants nothing to do with you now. He knows about the loss that you've experienced, the loss of income, the loss of friends, the losses that no one else knows in this room, God knows. He knows about how you suffer each day with debilitating sickness, either physically or mentally. Jesus knows, and he hasn't left your side. He is with you. And he will get us through. We're going to sing in a moment. It is well with my soul. The, the writer of this song says, When peace like a river attendeth my way, when sorrows like sea billows roll, whatever my lot, thou hast taught me to say, it is well, it is well with my soul. Though Satan should buffet through, though trials should come, let this blessed assurance control that Christ has regarded my helpless estate and has shed his own blood for my soul. My sin, oh, the bliss of this glorious thought, my sin, not in part, but the whole. Friend, it's nailed to the cross and we bear it no more. Praise the Lord, praise the Lord. And Lord, haste the day when my faith shall be sight. The clouds be rolled back as a scroll. The trump shall resound and the Lord shall descend. Even so, it is well with my soul. So I'm going to ask you to stand and I'm going to ask you to sing out. So much that our neighbors wonder what's going on here. It is well with our soul.
See you. 